Hello. I know we don't normally say what time of the year it is or try to specify a time of day or anything when we record these sessions. After all, we don't know when you'll be listening, but it seems rude to start the year with a new recording and not to say Happy New Year. So, hello and Happy New Year and welcome to Crime Time FM and In Person with Paul. Let's hope this is a good year for all of us and for books. Looking at some of the early titles, it's certainly starting with a bang. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction and I interview authors about their latest novels. Although I have to say this special is slightly different. It's an interview with one of the biggest names in British crime fiction. So, we finished 2022 with an on-the-sofa special in which Victoria spoke to legendary thriller writer Jeffrey Deaver. We start 2023 with the 2019 CWA Cartier Diamond Dagger winner, and that's for outstanding lifetime contribution to crime fiction, Robert Goddard. We'll be chatting about his latest novel, The Night They Come For You, which is out now in paperback, but we'll also be looking at his best-selling career. Since Past Caring was published in 1986, the critical and commercial success, Goddard has gone on to publish 30 novels. Into the Blue was published in 1990 and it was made into a film in 1996 starring the late great John Thor. He's written two series, the Harry Barnett series and the James Max Maxted series, both trilogies. And many of his books have been Sunday Times bestsellers in the UK. And he was nominated for an Edgar and an Anthony. And was the first winner of the inaugural W.H. Smith Thumping Good Read Award. Goddard's name is synonymous with quality and good writing. Layered thrillers that are proper page turners. Full of twists and intriguing plots and characters. The Night They Come For You deals with Algeria the fight for independence, the civil war and the decades of complex history that followed, all delivered within a gripping story and full of insight into events that are lesser known in Britain but actually we really should know more about if we're really interested in international affairs. Goddard has an extraordinary range. His last but one novel, The Fine Art of Invisible Detection, brought us the Japanese investigator Wada, a secretary forced to come to England when her PI boss is murdered. Wada is an unforgettable protagonist, so it's really pleasing to note that she will be back in 2023 in the fine art of uncanny prediction, and that will be out in August. So let's chat to Robert Goddard. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, Robert. Well, thanks very much, Paul. It's good to be with you, or at least in a sense with you. <laughs> yeah, we've all had to get used to that, haven't we? The Zoom meeting. So we are going to be chatting about your latest novel, The Night They Come For You. But let's start with a few general questions, if we could, please, Robert. What keeps you motivated to write stories? I mean, is it as much fun as it ever was? Uh, yes. Uh, what motivated me? Well, I mean, really, I think it was a, a point in life when uh, I realised that uh, I was uh, better at writing than doing most other uh, ways of making a living. Uh, so I seriously committed myself to trying to produce a novel, and I've gone on enjoying the process since then. I mean, I suppose there are some bits of the process that are more enjoyable than others, but fundamentally. Um, it's an enjoyable process. And in fact, I don't think you could really write um, as many as I've written if you didn't enjoy it. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Does it actually get any easier in any way because of the technique and the craft? 
Uh, I don't think it necessarily gets easier, but you you uh, you become more um, uh, familiar with mm. certain aspects of technique and structure. You you develop a, a sense for structure, particularly I think, and, and plot and character development, which initially you're just not uh, quite so good at. So in uh, in earlier work, I would. Um, describe somebody uh, driving up to a gateway and getting out of the car and going up the path and knocking on the door and then somebody would answer and they'd go in. Now mm. we just go in. There's a sort of uh, greater efficiency of mm. um, presentation and uh, inevitably over so many books you um, become uh, better at the craft of it, I would hope. <laughs> no, absolutely you do. Um, I'm just wondering, what do you feel about your writing that's changed over the years? I mean, is that something you can sort of tangibly identify? I think probably the stories have become a little faster in terms of mm. development, and this has resulted in uh, quite a lot of um, plotting, uh, quite a lot of uh, additional uh, material going into the stories. Um I think that's, but then over the years that I've been writing, which is now not far short of uh, 40 years since I started writing the first right. one, um, the whole way that the media, both books and TV and film, present stories has has undertaken a similar change. Mm. So I suppose inevitably you, you get carried along with that. And what remains for you those kind of essentials, the core in the way you write? Well, the I core mean, is... Sorry, the characters that you want to conjure with the problems that the plot you devise is going to throw mm. at them, and really that's the core of it. It's the it's the characters and the plot coming together, and then seeing how how that works out and how they cope with what I'm uh, giving them to come to, to to grapple with. Are there sort of elements of great storytelling that you could identify? I mean, is it, is it possible to sort of explain what that is for you? And then what sort of what distinguishes your novels in that sense? Well, I think I, I like stories that have a lot of depth to right. um, in terms of time and in terms of character. So I like the characters to be personally invested in the story that's being developed. I, I often use um, real-world events mm -hmm. from the past so there's a historical context to the stories. There's weight, there's place, there's detail of... Uh, location, um, the sort of people that you're going to encounter in those times and places. Um, I think those are the those are the cores of it. I mean the story beyond that is a, is another thing, but those are the the bedrock. Yeah. yeah. Now that makes an awful lot of sense. And one of the things about your writing is you've also been with the same publisher for more than three decades as well. Um, and I, I saw something the other day that said that only 8% of writers actually managed to write a third novel. <laughs> you, you got to your 30th, so you're, you're way ahead of the game. But I just wonder if there's sort of stability uh, in that relationship and it's helpful and sort of satisfying to have that relationship with your publisher. Oh, definitely. I mean, not only does that mean that they are um, uh, committed to the whole list of the books, but the, the relationships and friendships that I've developed with the people who have been there in some cases as long as I have, um, uh, they, they create a, a warm and supportive relationship, really, in which you are sharing in a, 
in a in a quite a lengthy process careers in fact theirs and mine <laughs> yes no absolutely so the other side of that of course is the reader and i'm just wondering about um people come back for the qualities that are in your writing i mean on top of what you've just said there's for instance the fact that you you like a lot of twists in your writing and there's a good momentum to your writing and that complexity of story and we'll get into that with the new book actually when we when we talk to that but um just about that do you feel that bond with the readers as well i mean they've been very loyal over the years too well i think they know that i'm going to be uh, writing the sort of stories that i've uh, written and i i wouldn't want it any other way and i don't think they would want it any other way so that's a bond if you like mm. um, it's sort of uh, awareness on both parts that uh, these are the sort of stories that we're going to explore um those are the only kinds of stories I can write, really. So yes, it, right. It, it's not. Uh, it doesn't require me to <laughs> force myself <laughs> to. Uh, You're not to writing to any, order or anything. No, no, no because I, I don't really. I, I can't really believe any writer can. No. Uh, can can write a story they don't want to write, or well, I, I, they do sometimes. I'm sure in certain circumstances end up doing that, but I'm, it doesn't work out very satisfactorily for anybody. I don't think it does. You have to feel that heart in a book, don't you? And it's not there if the author's heart isn't in it in the first place. One last question then, I think, before we move on to the book. And it's just that um, you're also a recipient of the CWA Diamond Dagger in 2019, which is a recognition by that you're a writer's writer, I suppose, in a sense, apart from anything else, as well as a bestseller. And that your body of work is a, is a major contribution to crime writing. I mean, is that gratifying? Well, no, it's very gratifying and very flattering of them uh, to have decided that I uh, was was deserving of of that award, which is which is really all about um, sustaining a writing career over quite a period of time, uh, and uh, it, it's it's uh, it was very good to know that um, my fellow writers thought that I'd um, been able to do that and come up to the mark in their estimation. Absolutely. So let's moving on to the kind of things that you you write about. Your novels cover so many topics and so many periods. When you're thinking about new ideas for novels, is part of the excitement stretching yourself, pushing yourself in new directions, if you like? I don't really push myself in new directions. Right. New direction just draws me. I mean, I'm attracted to a particular idea or, which is very often the case, uh, the idea has been sort of parked in my mind for a number of years. Right. I, I decide that uh, uh, the time has come or there's an idea that I've had that I can attach to that uh, and, and we'll make the new story and, and then I can explore it in depth. I was thinking in a way, I suppose, about let's go back to the novel, um, the one before this, the, the Fine Art of Invisible Detection, which has the Japanese widow who becomes a detective in the novel. Um, it, it just meant that then, of course, you have to draw on Japanese culture and you have to learn to understand the Japanese mentality. And another aspect of the book, of course, is because some of it's from her perspective, or the majority is from her perspective, you've got to get her sense of what it is to be British, because when she comes to Britain, that's yeah. part of the plot. And it seemed that, that it was a bit different, I suppose, in a way, to what you'd done before. I, and so I wondered if you were just looking for things like that, you know? I don't know that I was really looking for it. I think uh, Wada just uh, came to me. Right. And I, I, I felt that that was something I could try and do. Um, and I was pleased that um, I, I, I felt uh, that I was her when I was writing. 
the book and those seeds. Now, obviously, I knocked her, um, a middle-aged Japanese woman, uh, but um, that's part of the pleasure of writing and, and also part of the challenge of it is to try and see the world from the point of view of somebody totally different from you or, or indeed not so different as you might at first have thought that they were. In fact, you, you know that it, people aren't quite as different as we as we give them credit for, where there are certain basic characteristics. But I enjoyed being able to attach to her um, a Japanese-ness of uh, approach to problems and to people. And, um, of course, she is a solitary individual, so yes. that um, rather rather enhances those characteristics. And uh, she is uh, never aware of how... Um, of how amusing she can sometimes be. Uh, right. Her. But she has a very simple, direct, uh, straightforward approach uh, to the way she does things and what she requires of other people, which is seldom what she gets. But uh, she's really quite logical. And I, I think it's her logic, actually, has a remorseless, stubborn logic mm. that most appeals to me. But, yes, uh, and it's a real contrast with what's going on around her, and that works yeah, brilliantly. It's just... It's just uh, she likes an orderly life, and she's mm. always trying to create order out of chaos. Um, she only finds perfect order in her own very small domestic world, but uh, doesn't spend much time in that because actually that bores her. So she needs to um, grapple with these other issues. So might we see Wada again? And if we do, what sort of circumstance would, would for you as the writer, would make that happen? Well, I, I think we might well see uh, Wada again. Uh, right. Uh, I think I can say that. I think what what, what would be, uh, well, I, I suppose she has become a detective in the course mm -hmm. of, uh, of right. And I, uh, the, the obvious way is to see how, what she actually makes of uh, doing that on a, a more thorough right. basis um, yeah. on her own. I mean, she is on her own in this book, but she, she starts out uh, with, a, with a guide. And she still has a guide, really, in the, in the sense that uh, Kadaka, though, um, no longer with her, she's still following his way of doing yes. it. Yes, 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 absolutely. He was a solitary individual, and he could only work with her. <laughs> and uh, she could only work with him, so she, now she's on her own. <laughs> yeah. be interesting to see that. For me, I'm just curious about, because most of your novels, the majority of your novels, are these individual stories. Um, and I just wonder what it was, because you have got mine, James Maxted, and you've got Harry Barrett. So I just wondered what it was that, that sort of led to that. Um, well, sorry, carry on. Well, no, I think it's, it's, it's um, well, in the, case, in the case of James Maxted, the story was so um, large that mm. it became a trilogy. So that was really one story. Mm. Oh, that makes sense. Yes, of course. Uh, and one character in the case of Harry. Uh, and, and indeed, very possibly in the case of Wilder, it's being so attached to a character and seeing possibilities for developing them that draws you back to them. Although, ironically, having said that, it's fair to say that both with Harry and with Wilder, they, they don't really change. They're not really capable of mm. or even interested in changing their personalities, but they are, they are encountering ever more challenges in the world. Yes. That's an interesting point because actually it wouldn't work if Wada did change her character. It could be completely impossible uh, yes. to change her character. She was born like that. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. So I have delayed you a little bit on this one. Tell us about um, This Is The Night They Come For You. Well, This Is The Night They Come For You really drew on my interest over a number of years in some aspect mm. of Algerian history, um, 
the Algerian War of Independence was a notably violent, ferociously violent conflict uh, at the end of empire for France. I, I think in this country we have some kind of rather quaint notion that this is the only country that ever had a troubled imperial past. But in yes, fact, right. every one of the principal European countries has had similar imperial pasts, France, Spain, Portugal. Mm. The Netherlands, uh, Turkey, if we're going to call that a Belgium, of course, yeah. country for the purposes of the Balkans. All of these issues are um, very alive in those countries with the particular features of the areas where their empires existed and the kinds of things that went on there. And uh, I, I've always found every, every every time I inquired more into the uh, the Algerian situation, it became more and more complicated and more mm. and more fascinating, not just in terms of the War of Independence, but in many of the very mysterious and violent episodes that have followed in Algeria's history since independence. And I wanted to explore uh, some of those subjects in the course of this book um, right. through um, a combination of French, English, and Algerian characters. Yes, tell us a bit about uh, them. Well, I just wanted to try and have out, the outside involvement in Algeria, which has been um, much of the cause of their problems, mm. is reflected in uh, the choice of characters uh, who, who have a stake in that country or, or whose... Um, immediate ancestors have had a stake in that country and they are drawn back to the the issues surrounding them and mm -hmm. i suppose we also have the the, the the two central algerian characters taleb and hiduchi who are basically grappling with the present day consequences of all this um, difficulty uh, in their own lives and in the in the ways they're trying to um, lead their lives now mm. One slight aside before we get into the details of some of that, it's the thing about COVID and uh, the post-COVID world. You mentioned it at the beginning of the book to sort of say, well, it's here. I know. I acknowledge it because this is the time we're in. But then you move straight on. You think that's the best way to deal with this now, to just uh, do that? Well, actually, I'm happy to say that having uh, taken the decision to treat it like that at the time that I was writing the book, I think that's been vindicated by yes, right. events, really, because... I think inevitably that's what we do. You know, that's what humans do. They 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 encounter some problem like that, and eventually they get to a stage where they just move on. I didn't want to ignore it completely because I was mm -hmm. quite clear about when the story was set, and uh, so there would have been issues surrounding uh, COVID in the lives of the people in the story, and it's just lightly touched on as lightly as I can. It's just yes. part of the background. Um, it's not it's not relevant or significant to the story, but it's this part of the scenery. So uh, that's how I described it. Yes, right. We should move on. I think that's uh, that's interesting, though. Let's look at the research then, because I think that's the first stage, isn't it? When you're writing a book, it's about the research, and it's obviously crucial to your novels, um, which often have this strong historical element, and particularly this novel, which we'll talk about a little bit, but. When do you know you've got sort of enough research, in a sense, and it's time to write? Well, that can be a problem uh, because right. you go on researching. Although it's fair to say that I suppose I did, did have the advantage that the amount of material available in the English language on Algeria is not that extensive. So yeah, right, right. <laughs> at a certain point, 
That's uh, an interesting point. Yeah. Were I were I to be better at French, I could probably have gone on researching ad infinitum. But um, uh, that did sort of create a, a limit, and um, you've got to come to a point uh, where it's time to begin. Once you've got enough material for the story, much of the reading and the research can also be done whilst the story is being written, because you'll come to a particular part of the story where you need to know something that you didn't know you would need to know and then it's time to find out about that right, so that that does break it up a bit so i'm not i don't do it all and then start writing right understood so when it comes to the characters and that um do the ideas spring the ideas for the specific story if we take for instance harriet that starts this one off and we have another story running in algeria do those specific ideas for the story come out while you're doing the research? Because you mentioned you, you were very interested in the Algerian history anyway. Well, uh, there, were, there were a number of co coincidences of timing which determined some of the development of the story. So, for right. instance, the, uh, the, 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 the developments in the mid-60s, I, I made some use of Tati's uh, filming of Playtime. Yes, right. Which coincides with a number of other events. And I, that was a bit of a gift, really, to to involve um, various characters, especially since Tatty employed large numbers of uh, extras of all sorts, just right. that happened to be wandering by. He'd uh, he'd drag in um, for the filming, and so that I was then able to introduce um, a context in which certain characters meet. Yes, I see these other tensions. Um, so the whole. Um, period uh, during the sixties in Paris, which is which is relevant to the later story, um, emerged really from looking at chronology. Uh, and actually, it was, it was a perfect uh, justification for being able to explore playtime, which uh, meant I could do a bit about Tatty, who's always been <laughs> a bit of a favourite of mine. <laughs> well, there's there's one other. You mentioned the film Pepe Lamoco in there as well. And that's well, always I, been one of my favourites. <laughs> there aren't that many films to mention about Algeria. Algeria. <laughs> with that and the Battle of Algiers, that's pretty Yes, much of it. course. And, of course, then the Battle of Algiers again features in the novel. Um, yeah, there again, the, the, the timing of the uh, story was eerily appropriate for that. Yeah. There are sort of um, two significant events-stroke-historical periods in the novel that we just started to talk about. Um, and I think, in a way... Neither of them very well known in Britain. Um, first of all, there's the 17th of October, 1961. Well, that was um, one of the reasons for writing the book when I did was that uh, we were um, approaching the um, 60th anniversary mm. of that event uh, and um, still not sort of properly um, addressed by... Oh, right. ...by... The French, there was a sort of apology by uh, Macron uh, around the But that time. was only last year, of course, yeah. Yes, uh, around the time of the anniversary. Mm. Yeah, I say a sort of apology because I don't think the word apologise ever actually right. featured. But there was a sort of coming to terms or, or admission of what had actually happened, mm. which when you read the details of what happened, it, it, it's hardly possible to believe that uh, that level of... Uh, brutality uh, could have occurred in the very centre of Paris, uh, in front of all the Parisians, really. Uh, uh, extraordinary, really, to to read about the level of violence meted out with, with, with large numbers of bodies floating down the Seine. It's, it's just uh, it's still astonishing, really, that that could have occurred so relatively recently, well within the memory of many people 
there now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to put a little bit more context on it for people, um, we don't know, but more than 100 people probably wound up getting killed that night, and it was a peace protest, really. Um, but the police let loose, and when they did let loose, they really let loose. One thing well, that's... Sorry, carry on, yeah. Well, I was going to say, as with all things uh, uh, relating to Algerian history, nothing is ever mm. simple, because it was obvious that the... Um, uh, the FLN, the Algerian terrorist group, were deliberately uh, provoking the police in the weeks before mm-hmm. that by assassin- well, murdering police officers, basically, when they were off. Yes, injured. right. So they were hoping that the police would do something which they could then use um, to, 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 against the French. And indeed, the police did do something. So there's never, never anything really that straightforward yes i see what you mean of course, the poor people who were the victims of the violence didn't know anything about the uh, the fact that that was the, the object of the exercise so there's never anything very straightforward and um, attributing responsibility and blame in these situations becomes a very murky process really mm. that's interesting yes i'd like to get into that a little bit later about the complexity of it but um because, of course, this is in the ba- against the background of the fact that since the Second World War, certainly through the 50s, there were slaughters going on in Algeria itself from both sides they and were. a terrible fight going on at that time. Yes. Um, but another thing that struck me, I wonder whether it's really relevant at the end of the day, is that we're only 16 years after the end of the Second World War. And I'm just wondering how much those police might still have been influenced by the fact that they were collaborating with the Nazis only a few years before that. Well, Paul, that's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's another book. That's that's an imponderable, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Well, right. certainly the, 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 the police chief at the time uh, was a notorious uh, mm. Nazi collaborator. Uh, uh, indeed, it, well, he was eventually exposed uh, for yes, his right. role. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, there was, there was a lot of that. Um, I, I, w- when I read uh, the detail of what took place, I really was... Um, I I remember it being the subject of one French crime novel, a novel called Murder in Memoriam by Didier Denex. Um, But until recently, where you see it more in Algerian novels, it's it's rarely been mentioned. And of course, from a British perspective, I don't think it was really covered at the time. And and then the French decided to cover it up anyway. So what did happen didn't get out at the time either, even in France, did it? No, it's taken a long time um, for people to... To face up to what occurred. Mm. The other aspect that, that to the story that really complicated. I mean, you went for a complex one here. This is this is <laughs> you went with that, and you've just pointed out how complex an issue that was. But of course, that led to a situation in Algeria in the nineteen nineties, and that's where another part of the story is set. And that I, I did know about this because I, I remember reading about it at the time, but it wasn't sort of mainstream news. It was every once in a while you'd read a story. For instance, I think I remember one about a ship's crew slaughtered en masse um, in the dock one night. You know, just that that sort of thing was going on all the time. It was. And and, and it was not clear who was doing it uh, or why they were doing it, apart from destabilising the nation. Uh, There were all kinds of... um, well, it is alleged that many many of these operations were false flag operations. They weren't being done by terrorists. They were being done by arms of the wings of the state in order to justify further crackdowns. And there were other elements, purely criminal, uh, mm. 
gangsterism. There were there was various forms of uh, score settling because uh, various entities thought, well, under the cover of all this, we can get away with something we've been itching to do for, right. for a number of years. Once that degree of complexity starts being introduced, um, and the motto at the time expressed by the baffled and worn down Algerian people was "Who is killing who?" Mm. Uh, they just it, it was just ten years of um, madness, really, uh, in which you would never know what was going to happen next, and certainly the the, the police were often. Um, uh, in the front line on this, yes, uh, right. The least likely element, incidentally, to have been carrying out um, agent provocateur activities, that would have been done more by the secret service. But the police would often be, uh, you know, just in desperate ambushes, uh, false callouts. Um, right. There are references in uh, Taleb's past, uh, Taleb being the police character in the story, to how different uh, effects on his own family, uh, on his colleagues, on when they were shot at at the funeral of a colleague. I mean, that's a genuine incident when they... Right, I see. ...the funeral, and uh, many of them were shot at when they were actually right. at the graveside. Um, uh, he's just... Based, uh, a, a lot of them, and it also, rather sort of um, tangentially, uh, it's ref- I, I, make, I make reference to the fact that Talib is still parking his car in a, in a car park rather than on the street. <laughs> yes, right. Because it was never safe to park your car on the street. He's right. still using the same parking space he was using in the 1990s in a parking garage with a lugubrious attendant who gives him the benefit of his opinion every time he goes there to pick up his car. <laughs> but at least it's safe. <laughs> That's, I mean, and I don't want to make it sound like these two things are, are separate. They're not separate. The whole point about this is that they follow on. This is the connected history. This is what comes afterwards. But, of course, de Gaulle and France, in some ways, or certain elements of French society, wanted this to fail. So, in a sense, they might have looked at this afterwards and said, there we are, back to them and look what they do. Well, that was you know, always an allegation uh, circulating in Algeria that that was more than just a hope that things would uh, fail, but uh, that it went so far as active intervention to ensure that it failed. So, now... Uh, there's really very little hard evidence to back that up. Um, mm. But there's a very, actually there's very little hard evidence about the entire entirety of the 1990s. Yes, right. What can be said is that I think by the end of the 1990s, uh, the Algerian society in general had become so sated and so worn down by this that they were just went into a state of exhaustion, mm. um, which is probably one of the reasons why the Arab Spring had no effect in Algeria, really, to speak of at all. Just no, no will for it. No, no will. No. Yeah, no. yeah. But now that generation has been replaced by a younger generation, that has changed slightly with the uh, deposition of uh, Bouteflika and younger people becoming more active because, of course, they don't remember the 1990s. Yes, right, yes. See... It strikes me that French politics, it's always been an intellectualized thing in France. You know, there's always been a lot of debate around and lots of of theories of government and all sorts of things. And of course, with de Gaulle and that, it often came down to actually cracking heads. So much as it may have looked pretty on paper. Yeah. Well, it came down to somebody else cracking heads. Yeah, Uh, right. uh, Mr. Le President would not have Mm. known anything about that. (laughs) Absolutely. No, he wouldn't have known a thing about it. Of course he wouldn't. But... (laughs) 
I was going to say that it does get us into the issues, as we said. Now we, we've established a sort of complexity, um, and other issues, for instance, of course, the attempt to hang on to some of Algeria, possibly the oil fields, things like that. Um, the fact that we have the Piedmont as well, you know, and that complicates things because of the promises that were made to them uh, after the thing and the, the legacy that we've been talking about. How do you get that complexity of a story and then manage to weave a story, or not complexity of a story, that history, and then weave a story through it that has this clarity and drive and at the same time makes sense of those things for people? How complex is that? You're, you're, sh you're shaping chaos in a sense. Well, I mean, I, I, I took it all uh, sort of in and um, then the story itself developed out of that. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't feel complex when I right. when I create the story. It feels just a question of what are these characters going to do in these situations um, that I'm putting them in, um, and you could just all the rest is context. So mm. uh, the sort of sort of things they're going to be dealing with and the sort of pressures they're going to come under. Um, I mean, a lot of it is. Uh, directly derived from the research that I carried out. So um, uh, certainly there was a period in the, in the 90s when anybody who, well, not anybody, but quite a few people who thought they were likely to be targets would have just never left their home. You know, they, they became prisoners in their own homes because, and we see that in one of the characters in the story. That it's just indeed, yes. But the consequence of that is, and, uh, actually, I suppose you could argue that there was, there's a bit of a COVID echo there. Mm. <laughs> they were they were locked down in their in their flats, um, just waiting for this political situation to improve, so that they weren't going to be shot the moment they set foot on the street. Um, so all of that feeds into the characters and uh, the uh, the situations. So I just enjoy that process. Mm -hmm putting the characters in this and then just seeing how they're going to weave a path through it. Yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense. I didn't, I also don't want to imply it's complex in the sense that it's, you know, difficult to read. It's not, you get that. It's just a situation, you know, this whole, I suppose any history, if you look at it, really, it's complex. It's a lot more complex than we'd, we like linear lines and nice clear pathways. And of course they don't exist in reality. Now, you know, that's absolutely true, Paul, because as soon as you begin researching something, uh, and then you actually have to think about it rather than just you know, reading a newspaper right. headline and, 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 either, and either thinking that that supports or doesn't your preformed opinion. Mm. <laughs> uh, you actually have to engage with real people in real situations in the past, and then you begin to see just how complicated everything always is, even if it doesn't seem to be, uh, even if you take something that's supposed to be simple. They're not always as complicated as Algerian history. I, I think that's that's a pretty tangled one. But they, yes. there's, there's always a there's always a level of complexity because the uh, the heroes are never never it turns out uh, completely heroic, and even some of the villains aren't uh, even completely villainous. So it's um, it's complicated. But then yeah, <laughs> but hey, absolutely. But also, I mean, if they're villains, if they're out and out villains, we can't recognise them anyway. They're not they're not like us. We need to understand that you know. Good people do bad things, bad people do good things. It's something that's yeah. part of a um, character development when you've got a story. But 
is it is there something in the way you tell the stories also sort of aimed at helping people to understand or explaining in a sense why things are the way they are um maybe i mean i i don't consciously think in those terms, right i think about faithfully reflecting as far as i'm able to the sort of opinions that people would have the sort of motivations they would have and the sort of things that they would do as a result of that mm. so i'm not really um seeking to explain anything other than in the sense that explaining what you need to understand the story itself understand the story and the characters mm. in it. it's certainly um i suppose taking all the research and uh it's not exactly a process of simplification. It's a question of um, refinement. That's what it is, really. It's, it's, it's drilling it down into into something and to find and, and finding characters who um, reflect something of the um, of the history that I'm dealing with. So there's the former nightclub singer Abdurrahmane, who uh, is a, a completely downtrodden figure, really. In, in the reality of Algerian society, but uh, uh, the force of her own character means that she's never really uh, defeated, even when, to all intents and purposes, she is. She still has a spirit within her. Yes, right. When it comes to real history, what do you feel your responsibility is as a novelist? Uh, to be as accurate as possible, actually, mm. and only to only to make things up about things that are not known. Uh, it would never alter a uh, known event. Um, I, I only speculate about possible surroundings of known events. So uh, that, that's, that's the level of responsibility, I think. I mean, so often, um, particularly in the Hollywood film world, mm. The, uh, the past is just, uh, we just alter everything to, to yes. suit the interest of entertainment. And, and if you want to worry about these things, you can worry about how we've ended up in a situation where somebody who watches a film about something thinks that might actually be true. You could watch all these series of uh, The Crown, for instance, and mm. uh, think that they uh, actually were <laughs> truthful. Um, and yet we know, for those of us who've care to inquire into it, that a number of incidents are not only not, a, only not true, but are known, were known by the writer of the series to be untrue when he wrote them. Now, yes. Yeah, I, I agree totally. I don't like that at all. I don't understand, in fact, why people feel the need to make up history or to change it, because it's so vast and so covered with details and stories that are brilliant anyway, that it seems crazy. But you know, a lot of Vietnam films, for instance, were designed at sort of recreating. They were kind of designed at making America think they won the war, in a sense, which is a complete rewrite of history. <laughs> Total nonsense. Well, there was a period where I think we've given up on that. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, they have. Uh, and goodness knows, um, uh, I remember sitting, uh, uh, sitting in the cinema watching Apocalypse Now um, for the first time. Uh, you know, it was a, a really, I mean, not that that's it in any way an accurate event but it no right seemed to capture something about vietnam that was that was real yeah i think some of that chaos apart from anything else but it's interesting i, th I think you're right it's about weaving in and out of the real history though isn't it your story has to go in and out and it has to yes. in a sense not touch the sides or not damage the sides in, in the process 
how about when you've got because de Gaulle's not really a character in the book, but he's an influence in the book. He's in the background of the book, as you point out. Other people did his dirty work anyway. But how, how do you react? How do you sort of um, think about putting somebody like de Gaulle in the book? Well, that, 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 that seems to me to be perfectly uh, reasonable. I, I've certainly oh, absolutely um, real people from the past in books, uh, as long as you do the very best you can to reflect accurately and honestly what that person was actually like. Yeah, that's that's as we were saying about not altering the known historical record, nor yes. should you try to alter the known historical person. So, in other words, the reactions of de Gaulle should, in a sense, be consistent with de Gaulle's character. It's as simple as that from, a, from your well, point of view. Yes, although it's fair to say that in the case of de Gaulle, we're talking about a, um, a quite a Sphinx-like character. <laughs> <laughs> you know, establishing what is entirely <laughs> could be a little difficult. But yeah. um, I think it was all about France. I think we can say that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's not just about getting into the attitudes of the time and the place, which are crucial, obviously, because you've got more than one historical period here, but it's also about the characters. And one of the interesting things is we see the characters when they're young and we see the characters when they're older. And you mentioned um, Taleb and his situation in the 90s. And of course, for his partner, Hiduchi, actually, she actually isn't, well, she's four years old when that actually happens. So there's a fascinating you have to understand the characters also from different perspectives, don't you, in a sense? Oh, yes, you do. Yes, his attitudes are obviously totally different uh, from hers, uh, not, not just because they're of different ages, but also because their experiences are different. Uh, she um, still has a, a lot of optimism, uh, as, uh, as is uh, often the case with your younger talent. He did, he did have optimism <laughs> in <laughs> place, but experience... A good reason to lose some of it, yes. Now he's, well, to to be fair, he still has optimism. He still has this, he doesn't think he's a bright character. You know, he's... He can't quite stop himself hoping that somehow we're going to reach a satisfactory conclusion out of this. He's still looking for answers. The whole, it seemed to me the whole book sort of rests on the relationships between the characters. Um, If you take Taleb and Hadouchi, as we've said there, and you've got Suzette and Stephen and Nigel Dolby and Harriet, it's those relationships that progress the story, really, isn't it? It is, yes. And and what they're what what they're trying to do in some cases over periods of time, uh, yes, it's, it is all about that. Uh, and uh, they how they how they discover um, the truth. Yeah. Um, so we have um, various subsidiary characters as well. So yes, right. Uh, Stephen's um, sister, Wendy, mm. who, whose position is essentially that of a very sensible, level-headed person, which is, for goodness sake, let's just <laughs> move on. Yes, yes. Live your life. Stop uh, going, uh, obsessively pursuing the truth about what happened to your other sister decades ago, uh, but he can't do it. Uh, whereas she just wants to, uh, she would like him to accept that the past is the past, but um, he's never going to do it. That's, sorry, I shouldn't say No, carry on, please. No, no, because, well, that's touching too much upon the end of the story. Right, okay. Um, But what is interesting about that is you do take a lot of care with the subsidiary characters 
because obviously they, they do impact the central characters. They wouldn't be there at all if they didn't serve a purpose in that sense to the story. But you do do that, though, don't you? You do take a lot of care with subsidiary characters. Yes, well, I mean, of course, there would be no story if Wendy was the central character because she wouldn't. Right. <laughs> but she is exasperated, of course, as any as any sensible level-headed person would be uh, in this situation. So that's quite genuine. I think I was mentioning Abdurrahmani, mm. uh, who, who, who becomes ever more uh, a sort of... Uh, she has an influence on Taleb. And mm. um, I, I like subsidiary characters. I always like them to, to play potentially quite significant parts in the development of the story. Um, and they, they, they have their own pasts. They're not just um, expedients. They are um, right. they're, they're there in their own right. Yeah. And the other thing is that Harriet hangs over the story. She's not directly in the story for much of the story. But it's, it's incredible the way you sort of establish that. And then you just never can forget Harriet's story because that motivates everybody in a, in a way. Well, she made a mistake, um, a very simple mistake. Right. One day she uh, thought, I can just resolve this problem. And she was, she was dealing with the wrong kind of people to uh, try that on. But that's interesting because that gets us into the area where a sort of innocent is drawn into a situation. And it, you're right. I mean, the point about it is that Harriet just doesn't understand where these people are coming from, no. what their experiences are and how prepared they are to deal with issues in order to avoid, well, the truth coming out in that particular case. Yeah. There's some humour in the novel too. In fact, there's a humour in your novels. You like that. And one of the things that got that for me, I think, was it was generated by that, that partnership between Taleb and Hiduchi. Um, their difference in age, of course, but also their different ways of looking at life and the way they came to things. I mean, she's quite a tough, agenda-driven young woman, and he's wily and old and knowledgeable he knows his way around i mean do you like that idea of bringing those characters who can sort of add a sense of humor to the novel uh yes i mean uh their their exchanges are often uh, quite amusing although i mean i didn't really set out to make them amusing it was right right of the two characters though it was inevitable that he would he would say things that she would um, decide were ridiculously old-fashioned and mm. Uh, unrelated to the needs of the modern world. But then, of course, she discovers that um, she's going to need some of his experience to uh, make any progress in a, in a case which is so very tied up with the past. And then, at a certain point in the story, uh, they both realise that uh, there's no one else they can trust apart right. from each other. And then um, all of that becomes a little more complicated and they both have to do their best yeah absolutely because there is an interest then the question becomes in a way um there is truth to be found but who wants to find it and when they find it what do they actually want to do with it so it's it's quite uh they they have to na navigate that between them they do but they both want to find the truth they really do yes yes question of how much you're willing to pay for it absolutely this, um, I mean, you could see this book in a sense as a sort of a spy story, a political story, historical, um, police procedural. Do you think about it that way or do you just write your stories and they are what they are? Well, I very much write they are what they are, really. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think of them more as mystery novels than, or mystery thrillers. They're, they're really mystery thrillers. We could call them crime novels. We could call them thrillers. We could call them psychological thrillers. Uh, right. 
they're, they're really mystery thrillers. Um, I don't really um, set out to write any particular style of book. It's just the style of book that I write. Mm. I don't think I could write any other style if I if I attempted to. It would rapidly turn into a mystery thriller, despite my own best intentions. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, yeah. That that makes perfect sense. Of course. Yeah. You you write the books you write. That's and it's popular. So why not anyway? For a start. Do you enjoy the cultural research as well? And by that, I mean sort of getting into the films and the music and, and perhaps the books of the time that you're investigating. Is that part of your research? Well, it, I mean, it's to the extent that I want to be able to um, uh, depict the world in which the story is set. Yes, I mean, some things would interest me more than others about that, but mm. um, there is uh, uh, an element of that. Uh, anything, really, that, that depicts the world... Um, in which the characters are moving. So anything really like that, it becomes quite complicated. It, it, there is a cultural element. What songs are they going to uh, be listening to? I think I think it's a brief mention of Francoise Hardy. Right. <laughs> as being the obvious, uh, yes. the obvious uh, music that two young English people in Paris are going to be listening mm. to in 1965. Um, uh, so that kind of thing, really. There's also the uh, geographical uh, element, which is finding out what was where, when. Uh, right. Time. I mean, Paris has changed less than mm. cities, but but even then there was a railway line that they would have used, uh, which is no longer there, So, or rather a railway station that's uh, no longer there. So things like that, um, uh, I have to check quite quite carefully before uh, before they're disposed of in half a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no, nobody knows that I've <laughs> gone to all that trouble. But if, uh, of course, I've gone to all, or I haven't gone to all that trouble, somebody would no doubt uh, point oh, out. Oh, yes. So, you, you can guarantee you'd have a letter the next morning. There's well, somebody waiting to open the novel. He's I sitting am. there looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's that. I think it's that out there somewhere there's, somebody reading the book who happens to know quite right, yes. the subject. And, and, and uh, in the same way that you, you or I must also experience that, you, you read something. I, you do. You do read something and right. you think, well, that's not right. Um, I have to say, as long as the writing is good and the book is good, it doesn't put me off necessarily. I mean, I don't expect to – you can't be omnipresent or so omniscient when you're writing a book. You can't know everything. In it. So that's, that would be too much to expect. It's things you don't know you need to know. Mm. Really. knowing the things you need to know that's that's a straightforward challenge of research but there are other things that you didn't know you needed to know it's we're getting into a bit of donald rumsfeld there really aren't we? <laughs> known unknowns and the unknowns unknown unknowns yeah yes. I, I think what he meant now. <laughs> in that case we'll stop with that question before we get into that area um okay can I ask you about conspiracy? Because conspiracy is, is a theme in your novels, in a sense, or, or there are conspiracies in your novels. This is the point, I suppose. Um, conspiracies are very real things. You can find them. And there are, there's more than one conspiracy in this. For instance, the conspiracy to hide what happened in 1961. Um, that's something that we could say straight out. But, but then conspiracy theories themselves can often be quite fanciful. And it's a di I feel it's a different thing. How does that? How do you feel about that? Well, um, there are conspiracies, um, and if you 
don't find a, a, a suggested uh, or a suggestion as to the existence of a conspiracy plausible, you would tend to call it a conspiracy theory mm. because that would suggest that it wasn't true. <laughs> A conspiracy theory, the phrase always suggests to me that there's obviously no substance to this theory, but uh, that that, that clearly can't be the case because until such point as a conspiracy has been demonstrated, then then it can only exist as a conspiracy theory if we're willing to accept that there are, and certainly Algerian history is riddled with actual examples of conspiracies, then we have to sometimes grapple with the area which could be called conspiracy theory. Um, uh, I think what you're saying is that, um, what, what, what I think you're proposing, Paul, is that a conspiracy theory is by definition not true. Is it, it was that? I suppose in a sense, but what you say, the nuancing it the way you did makes an awful lot more sense. Um, but I, then I think you can also get those novels that, that uh, head off on some kind of wild goose chase kind of theory, you know, stuff that gets wacky. And ah, yes. maybe may fun. I suppose that's really the problem. Is I'm saying, I suppose, in a sense, there's real conspiracies out there. We don't need to go looking for crazy ones. You know, <laughs> you just need to uncover what people are really doing. Yes, I suppose I was just indicating that if if uh, anybody who is opposed to revealing uh, a certain truth will describe those who are trying to expose that right. truth as conspiracy theorists, that's uh, you know, that's the first. Yes, First line sense. of defence, this is just a mad conspiracy theory. We, the disinterested third parties, have to try and uh, work out which ones are, are real um, or possibly real theories, or, mm. or at least reasonable theories, never mind reasonable, yeah, yeah. reasonable <laughs> and which ones are clearly deranged. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the challenge. Now, you know, there are plenty of... Uh, uh, strange and murky episodes um, to pick from um, and, and, and speculate as to what uh, may have been uh, going on. I mean, we've we've just had recently a revival of all the interest in what happened to Princess Diana. Yes, right, of course. Which, as far as I'm concerned, it was a road accident, but which other people choose to believe was. Uh, one of the things I've noticed about that, and this applies to a lot of the conspiracy stuff is that the scene of that death is described as a tunnel. Mm. Now it's just it's just a, a relatively short flight. Right, I see. It's not a long tunnel. Mm. For some reason, tunnel makes it sound more sinister. So yes, it does. Invested with that word to uh, I don't even know if the people doing it know they're doing it because it was only a few years afterwards when I was in Paris and I happened to find myself in the area and looked at it, I thought, that's really not a tunnel at all. It's just a wide bridge. Mm. Um, it's interesting how we, we use that. Or we might go back to the sort of the, the grandfather of all conspiracy theories, the Kennedy assassination. Yes, right. We think about sinister geographical features such as the grassy knoll. Mm. Is that a bit? piece of grass <laughs> it's not <laughs> a brief a sort of small bank yeah that people are all grass bank but <laughs> when it's repeated time after time yes i see what you mean it sounds like it's an um, entity it's got some power yeah. of its own yeah it does it does so you know i think the grassy knoll has probably also entered the lexicon as a, you know as a, as, a, as a sinister concept and i i do remember actually for years after 
the Kennedy assassination, I was always baffled by the fact that the uh, I was shown this photograph of the picture of the book depository, and there'd been a right, movie, yeah. Which I was told was on the seventh floor or something. And I could never work that out because it appeared to me to be on the sixth floor. It was only some years afterwards that I became wiser to the ways of American language that I realized that um, to the Americans, yeah, sixth floor was the seventh. Only yeah, they start on the first. Only then did I understand what had all been around all along. <laughs> now, that's another one, actually. Working out floors. Um, uh, what, what, what? So, what is the what is the correct? Yes, use? I see. If you've got a story, now, okay, it's a story being written by uh, by you, um, set abroad. Uh, what are we going to call the floors? Uh, are we going to describe them as they would be described by the French or the Americans or the English or uh, which, which which usage are we going to go for? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if it's in America, it's an elevator, not a lift. That's right. Yes, yes. But if you're English or if your narrator is English, you're liable to call them. Yes, right. So, you know, it gets very complicated. There's more complications to it than you think, indeed. So what's next, Robert? Well, what's next is I'm, you know, I'm exploring other possibilities uh, for, uh, and you know, I was suggesting to you earlier, or you were suggesting to me earlier, that we might uh, see Wilder again. And I, uh-huh, right. I, I rather... Um, I rather uh, didn't. I didn't. I don't think I asked that question specifically. But since you're asking me what's next, I think I think Wilder is probably um, right. Um, uh, okay, she's got a she's got a case, yeah. but then she would have. Wouldn't she? she would because now she's a detective. <laughs> We've established that. Yes. So one last question, then, Robert. Um, what about a recommendation? Something you've read perhaps recently that that struck you, or something in your research, even if. if if you want, you know. Uh, well, I mean, in terms of research, uh, they would be rather uh, of interest only to the true historians and of right. Algerian history. Although, uh, uh, so that would be one. Uh, um, well, I mean, I've been. I suppose, which is a, not altogether surprising, and I've been reading quite a few uh, works by Japanese writers to right. try and get insights into. Uh, Japanese characters, uh, and uh, so there have been quite a few books uh, that I, I've read. I'm not sure there's one that I particularly want to uh, to, to push uh, instead of um, uh, uh, so many others. No, I see what you mean, though. It's, they have a very interesting. Oh, there's a lot of Japanese novels that came along later, which deal sort of with golden age stories, and they have their own. They bring their own particular culture to it, and it's quite a fascinating way to, you, to read those stories. Anyway. Yes, I mean, um, Wada, of course, is always her favorite author is Tanizaki, who right. is my favorite Japanese author. Uh, and I, I don't even know why, which is perhaps an insight into Japanese literature. I don't really know why Tanizaki. Mm. He certainly shouldn't be because he often deals with largely plotless, um, yes, uh, uh, and often quite rambling explorations of the characters and relationships. So. On the face of it, uh, I shouldn't really enjoy Tanizaki's work, but somehow Tanizaki manages to create the impression, perhaps the illusion, that there's something just under the surface mm. going on. If I could only just get my hands on it, I'd know what was really happening here. And he always manages to fascinate me in that way. Yeah, that's interesting. There are some authors that do that to you, yeah. Um, Robert, that's been fascinating. Thank you very much. Okay, Paul, well, it's been a pleasure.
thank you to Robert Goddard for sharing so much with us there. I really enjoyed that chat. This is the Night They Come For You is published by Bantam in hardback and Penguin in paperback. It's available, of course, in all good bookshops and all book outlets, but you can order it through us by clicking the program link on the page, which will take you to bookshop.org. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe with your favourite podcast provider. I'll be back with another interview very shortly, but in the meantime, bye for now and thank you very much for listening. <laughs>